Um, the passage is Genesis 29, verses 1 to 30. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country, with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. And Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will walk the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. How many of you like running? Is anyone into running? Hands up, a few. How many don't like running? Yeah, there we go. There's, there's a larger number, isn't it? I've never liked running myself. Um, when I, years and years ago, when I was uh, at university, when I used to row and play rugby at uni, obviously running was something you did, and you kind of endured it because you knew that it would help you in the boat or on the pitch, play uh, faster, be fitter. But recently, over the years, I've, I've found running is, is a bit helpful, but recently I found this app that is really good. It provides discipline, it provides encouragement, it helps you push through 
those different pain and mental barriers you have when you're running. It's got techniques to improve your running. It's incrementally changing not just my experience of running, but the way I run. Uh, even to that extent, I caught myself as I was passing BNM bargains. It just so happened that the app, the coach on the app, was shouting some encouragements and said, Come on, join in with me. Say, I'm a better runner than I was five minutes ago. And there I am. I'm a better runner than I was five minutes ago. Crazy, isn't it? But the app's purpose is putting one foot in front of the other. Keep going. Keep going. Consider God's big agenda for your life. Wherever you are, even if you don't believe, if God is there, what's his agenda for your life? Well, he makes it clear throughout Scripture, but particularly when Jesus prays before he's arrested. His agenda is to change us to be like Jesus. It's to grow us more and more into his glory. Jesus prayed this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the apostles' message. So at that point, he's praying for everyone beyond his immediate crowd. He's praying for us in Manchester in 2022. And he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. I've made you known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Can you see that? It's bring them. I want people to know me, to be brought in me into such a way that they experience the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and are in glory together. And that means being changed, being changed by Jesus. And you see, the interesting thing is God uses everything that happens to us in this life to make us more like Christ. And that's one step at a time change. And in chapter 29, verse 1, Jacob is on a journey of one step at a time change. Quite literally, the phrase there in verse 1 in the Hebrew is, he picked up his feet. Now, let's just do a quick recap. Last week in chapter 28, Jacob had a life-changing encounter with the Lord. Andrew's already mentioned that really helpfully as we've been singing. He met with the Lord. He had a spiritual revelation in a dream where God met him and gave him the promises he had promised to Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his father, and now they're there for Jacob. Promises about giving him children, even though he has none, that will be numerous descendants, to protect him wherever he goes, to be with him as a presence to watch over him. None of it, as well, was deserved. Jacob hadn't earned it, quite the opposite. His life was marked by cunning schemes and deceit. With the help of his mother, we, we saw that he had tricked his blind dad, Isaac, into giving him the favorite, his favorite first son, Esau's blessing. Jacob's older brother, Esau, is, is now full of murder, murderous intent wanting to kill Jacob. So his mother, Rebecca, plots to get Jacob to safety, sending him to his father's, um, to away with his father's blessing to her parents, to her family, her relatives, particularly her brother, to Mesopotamia. And um, Ali, if you flick the slide, there's just a map there again that sort of shows you the geography of where this is going on. So the bottom yellow arrow is where Jacob was living with Isaac and family in the promised land of Canaan. And then he's going to travel all the way north up into Mesopotamia into what we know of as Turkey 
to be with Rebecca's family. This is a very troubled, sinful, flawed, fractured family. And yet God in his grace blesses them. And he uses them to be a blessing, as we'll see to all nations, ultimately through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as King and Saviour. And Jacob is clearly changed by the next incident in chapter 28, this encounter with God at Bethel. He says, how awesome is this place? Chapter 28, look at it, verse 17. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway of heaven. The Lord will be my God, verse 21. And this stone that he was using as some sort of protection, he's now transforming it. This stone will be a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. He's, he's encountered God. He's being changed. But he can't stay in Bethel. Verse 129, so he literally picks up his feet one step at a time. Change in progress. This is a a dangerous journey, a dangerous trek to uncertain reception. Will he find what he's looking for? As John Calvin observed, the Bethel experience, this meeting with God, has given him faith to continue. And how will that faith be used? How will it change? And this journey to safety and to find a wife is the consequence, though, of Jacob's deceitful behavior. In a very real way, we should be seeing this as an exile. He's going out of the land of blessing. His God is with him. But this isn't a, a bed of roses. It isn't a holiday vacation. 500 miles north into the fertile crescent, yes, this will be God's personal discipleship app for him. He is with him, he's going to change him, and it's going to be painful. One step at a time. Literally pick up your feet. And this is the, as we come to the the passage, it, it feels like a bit of a film script as well. I hope you felt that. There are bits in it that are written to both make you laugh and weep, to see the coincidences and providences. And so um, if we flick on the slide, please, Ali, I've split this into just two scenes. There are two scenes in this part of the film. And the first we're going to look at is verses 2 to 14, the meet cue. Now, in film and TV, a meet cue is a scene where two people will form, who will form a romantic uh, relationship. There's this tie. It's where they typically meet. It's either humorous or unexpected. It's sometimes a cute circumstance. One of the more well-known meet-cutes in movie history would be in Casablanca. And uh, again, Ali, if you can flick that up, thank you. This is where Rick Blaine, who's played by Humphrey Bogart, entering his cafe, walks over to Sam, who's playing the piano, and tells him, he orders him quite sharply, stop playing as time goes by. This song that obviously resonates with him in some way. And then as he says that, he looks up and by the piano is Elsa, not from Frozen, but the one before that, played by uh, Ingrid Bergman, sitting next to the piano, singing and humming away, who requested Sam to play it. And the director deliberately pauses, and it's quite a lengthy face shot on Elsa and her eyes glinting and full of expectation and longing, and then one of Rick. And there seems to be, again, that longing, but also pain. And later on, Rick, as he's drinking alone, tells Sam, I'm waiting for a lady, 
Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. You see, meet cutes are full of coincidence, and they can come at times of conflict, because love and conflict, well, to borrow Forrest Gump's phrase, well, they go together like peas and carrots. But the biblical equivalent of the gin joint is the desert well. And here we are at a desert well in Mesopotamia. We know this is really important because the writer's telling us, you can't have lost count, you may have lost count actually, how many times the well is mentioned, the well's mouth, the stone, the well, the stone, the well's mouth. It keeps coming up. That's because it's important. He wants us to look at it. And the alert listener and reader will remember from chapter 24, Abraham's servant met Isaac's wife, Rebecca, at a well. The servant had prayed for the Lord's guidance and success in chapter 24, verse 12. Whereas Jacob here just engages in some chat about how to water sheep with some local shepherds who providentially tell him that he is indeed in the right place for meeting his relative, Laban, who is Rebecca's brother. And it just so happens that Rachel, and her name means you lamb, well, Laban's daughter Rachel is on her way. She's heading here right now, the you lamb with her dad's lambs and sheep. Rachel, like her aunt Rebecca, obviously, she was an industrious woman. She had to be resilient. She had to be unafraid to do this rough and dangerous job of being a shepherd. It also says something about Laban at this point, like how he treats his family, that he's got a young daughter that he's prepared just to let roam off with sheep and look after them and do this heavy work. He's like, really? Dad? What are you... It should just leave us going, question mark, what's he like? We'll see more of that over the coming chapters. But for now, Moses the writer wants us to see God's hidden work. Even though the Lord isn't explicitly mentioned or acknowledged, we know from what happened at Bethel, he's with him. He's at work. He's at work throughout this chapter. Even though he isn't acknowledged explicitly, there are no prayers, there's no mention of the covenant Lord. We know he is the God whose presence and rule is active everywhere. These are no coincidences. The same Lord that found the wife for Isaac is making the connections for Jacob. But there's an unusual change taking place in Jacob here. This slippery schema is now turning into a strong servant. Did you notice that? He's contrasted by the lazy shepherds making excuses not to do the heavy work of watering the sheep. Now that Rachel's arrived, everything changes. He's prepared to roll up his sleeves. He leaps into action. He's taking initiative. He's defying the convention of first come, first served. As he rolls away this stone, which would normally take a few other guys as well, and he gets on with watering Laban's flock. He's shaming the shepherds and he's giving Rachel rest. And it makes sense that Jacob wants to give a good impression, doesn't it? Because if this is uh, Rachel here with his uncle's flocks and he's looking for safety, he's looking for, as his mum said, find a wife up there, he needs to make a good impression. He needs to win over his uncle. And Rachel runs off to tell him she's found him and what he's done, tell her dad. You see, Jacob has gone from Jamie Oliver pottering away in the kitchen to Jamie Foxx, the stone-shifting superhero, shepherd basher. 
Not only that, but Jacob is really joyful. Did you get that? The tone. Finding his relatives. It's really emotional, isn't it? He kisses. He embraces. There's weeping as well when Laban meets him. This is a warm homecoming. And at this point, in this scene, as this movie is playing out, you know, you can almost imagine the sun-kissed sort of setting in the well. All the sheep are happy. Jacob's happy, Laban's happy, everything. The music's swelling in the background. Wow, we've made it. In this excitement, and maybe that initial attraction to Rachel, though Jacob seems to have lost discernment, he seems to lose his sense of caution. His actions, did you notice this? What does he do when he meets Laban? tells him all these things. It's interesting that he's, he's just overwhelmed. He's like, ah! You know, he's just talking, talking. There's so much going on in him. But everything he's been through, he's telling him everything he's been through, that must include tricking Esau, deceiving his dad, the plan that his mum, Laban's sister, came up with, the fact that his brother is out to get him, the fact that he needs safety, he's looking for a wife, that's the whole plan. He's telling this guy, who's maybe, as we'll see, a bit tricky himself, what he's, what he's wanting. In the emotion, everything, pouring out. There's a naivety that's bordering on foolishness here. Again, John Calvin, the 16th century theologian and pastor, gives us some helpful counsel at this point. He writes, Whenever we may wander in uncertainty through intricate winding. So, you know, you're in life, you're not quite sure where it's going, it's a tough time. Love that description, intricate windings. Think about that on Monday morning as you're going into work. We must contemplate with eyes of faith. What? What are we to contemplate, John? Carries on. The secret providence of God, which governs us and our affairs and leads us into unexpected results. Can you see how a right view of God's providence, how he governs, how he leads us in uncertain and difficult times, actually wants to make us more attentive to our circumstances? A right view of God governing us means we go into the day looking for it, expectant, prayerful, sharp, discerning. We go in more aware of what is going on. We go in more patient. We go in more wise, looking at situations, how we respond, maybe being a bit more calm, because he's the one in control. We look at things through God's lens. We're prayerfully, at that moment, dependent on the Holy Spirit at each point. You see, getting caught up in the emotionalism and instinctively acting on our feelings from the gut can lead to difficult and painful consequences. You know, the go, let's just go large to go big or whatever, or just if you're not going to do everything, then you might as well be out of here, isn't always wise advice. We might be seeing some of that played out on a national level at the moment. Go big or go home doesn't always work. Here, it's a sign of immature discipleship, a hot-headedness, 
and acting on gut instinct and bravado, emotionalism. And Jesus likens this to the person who's building a tower, who's sitting down and estimating the cost to see if they have enough to complete it because you don't want to be the person who starts something and isn't able to finish it in Luke 14. He counsels his disciples, make prudent, courageous, wise decision in the light of his return. So here we can rejoice that our heavenly father is ordering our lives to glorify him, even if we can't see it. But we should be alert to it, even though we won't know it in all its fullness. And he gives, that gives us great confidence to take courageous, prayerful decisions to seek his glory. But not necessarily ones that are all wrapped up in emotionalism and hype and a feeling. The Holy Spirit is just as much as work in that prayerful, diligent, calm, God-centered way of deciding where we are. So how are you growing in contemplating and making wise decisions in the light of God's glory, of his good direction in each situation? How are you growing in that? Are you aware of it? Even this week, as you look at your diary and what's coming up, how are you handing that over to the Lord? Is it about the next job move? Is it about where to live? Is it who we invest time with in a Christian context? Who am I sowing into? Where can I build one-to-one relationships that will build us up to love the Lord more? Is it taking more responsibility at work? Is that one of the decisions you're facing? Have you discerned it wisely? Have you taken counsel from others? Maybe it's stepping up in service here at church. Maybe it's starting a new ministry. Maybe it's even considering a big change in direction, perhaps serving an overseas mission or looking to do a move in order to put you in a place where God is going to equip you and move you into a deeper sense of serving his kingdom. You see, our paths are intricate, aren't they? They're uncertain. But the Holy Spirit will not tolerate lazy passivity nor chaotic activism, which are both fundamentally self-centered. He will discipline us when we have spoken harshly or insensitively or in our arrogance. He will do this through our consciences. We must prayerfully listen. And he'll especially do that through other people, from caring, wise Christians to also brash, difficult colleagues and awkward family members because God will work through them as we see here so that we depend further on his grace, so that we are in, uh, matured. So can I ask you as a, a, a practical application question right now based on this first bit of this passage, who do you invite into your life to challenge you? Who do you have around you who speaks into your life, who sees what's going on, who can provide counsel, can, can help you think through those thoughtless words, perhaps, or the over-the-top or selfish actions, who you can turn to to sense-check plans and ideas so that God will be glorified in all you do? I imagine we're a bit shy about that. We all instinctively look for people who will just pat us on the back and say, yeah, a challenge is difficult, but it won't help us grow. 
I'd be happy to have a chat with you, even if it's one-to-one or whatever, about something called the four voices. It's something I've heard and experienced and had applied through a guy called Jim McNeish. And these four voices are just a tool, a way of helping discern different types of people that you should seek out for counsel, different voices that speak into us for wise counsel. Come chat to me after if you're interested. But each day, each day is a disciple-making day because God uses unexpected means, even our workplaces, even our flawed families, to change us. And this is where scene two, enter the dodgy uncle verses 15 to 30. Now, Laban rushed out to meet uh, Abraham's servant way, way back. And maybe that memory was still fresh in his mind because Abraham's servant came loaded with gifts, 10 camels worth. Rebecca came back to Laban and her father Bethuel with gold rings on and stuff like this. But imagine when Laban arrived at the well, there weren't 10 camels laden with any goods. Jacob didn't even have a donkey. He was on his own. Any gold? No, not a penny. Is this lad who he really said he is? You can almost see Laban thinking the process through. It's clear he's got his mother's cunning guile as, as that story is spilled out. He's taken what belongs to the older child but doesn't have any wealth to show for it and he's looking for safety and a wife. Who is this guy? It dawns on Laban that Jacob was at his mercy and highly exploitable. Jacob's strong so he can work he's, and over a few weeks start to discern, oh, he seems to have this uh, attraction to Rachel. He's got feelings for the younger daughter. And the Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says that Laban's open-hearted statement, surely you are bone and uh, you are my bone and my flesh, which echoes with Adam's words to Eve back in uh, Genesis 2, more likely suggests the grudging omission that would sound more like this. You have convinced me that you're my nephew, so you may stay. There's a dual tone going on here, and we just don't know which way it is. There's an ambiguity. You just can't be too sure with Laban. What does he really mean? And again, verse 15, his offer to pay uh, Jacob for work sounds very reasonable, doesn't it, when you read it? However, Bruce Waltke, another Old Testament scholar, points out at this point, but family would work for nothing, like, like Rachel's doing. Why? Because they're family. They're protected, they're provided for generously. They have all the riches of the father. So Laban is actually degrading this blood connection, this blood relationship, by making it an economic arrangement. It's as if he's thinking, you've stayed with me for a month, let's make sure we're clear about all the boundaries, uh, let's put in a, a bit of a package here, and I'll make sure I can benefit from your stay. It's a jarring note, but again, it's ambiguous. What does Laban mean? Laban should have done what a loving relative would have to help Jacob get started by building his own home. Instead, Laban keeps Jacob as nothing more than a laborer who's under contract. And in chapter 31, it all spills out, which we'll see later on as we work through these chapters, that he's been under hard work, hard conditions. His pay has changed 10 times in 20 years. 
And yet the lovesick Jacob does the deal, a whopping seven years' work, which is enormous price, apparently, for those times as a dowry, as a bride price, even for Rachel. But to him, those years are like a few days, we're told. And that's ironic, isn't it? Because his mum had told him he should only stay for a few days. But those few days, seven years. Here's a man whose life was empty. He had never had the father's love. He'd been ripped away from his mother's love, and he hadn't yet submitted himself to entrusting himself to God's love fully, to know that he is enough. And so for Jacob, having Rachel meant he would get the affirmation, he'd get the fix for his broken life. His epic love for her was dangerous because it was a rival God. And Laban could use that to control him. And you know what? That doesn't sound very dissimilar from most of us. What is our first love? What is our functional God? What is the thing that can just make our day or not if it's not going right? That thing we've invested in. There's a warning here. And again, Laban isn't entirely honest. He's dragging his heels about the marriage in verse 21. It's Jacob who reminds him it's payday. Let's try and get a few more months out, maybe another year. And the Hebrew phrase here that we translate, I want to make love to her, is unusually bold. It's graphic. It's really sexual for ancient discourse. Imagine saying to your father-in-law, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Jacob is sounding, at this point, like Esau running in from the field. I'm famished. Give me a bowl of stew. Can I have anything? Can you see the over-appetite? This desire gone bonkers. You see, this is the symptom of self-centered idolatry. And every human being struggles with that. It's so instinctive. We think, no, it's not a problem for me. All we'd need is a couple of days following you around and we'd be able to point out where that idol was because we can see it better in others than we can in ourselves. Jacob is captivated by the external beauty as well. There's been no mention of character, no mention of servant-heartedness. Leah is discarded because of weak eyes, whether that's an illness or more likely in the ancient Near East, a way of saying they're not attractive. I mean, this is so degrading. It's all about superficiality. Are they good stock for breeding? Oh, poor eyes here, just ignore her. It's, it's dreadful. It's, it's treating women like objects. Well, it is treating them as objects and commodities. And that's Laban, the father. What can he benefit from his daughters? Jacob and Laban are warnings to us of sinful desire. One is chasing sex, one is chasing money. Both are looking for their own approval and security. Why chase after these things as well when we know what? Jacob has the Lord. Why chase after them when we have the Lord? And the marriage, well... It would have been a public celebration if we flick on the slides. I think I've got a, a picture up here by a Dutch artist, uh, Jan Steens. Uh, and it's the pictures representing what happens next after the wedding. 
But again, in this wedding ceremony, there's no mention of God, there's no blessing, there's just the feasting. So having been wined and dyed, the, 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 the veiled bride would be presented to her husband, and the union is completed in sexual intercourse. Obviously, it's the evening, there's been plenty of booze, so it's dark, there's just, you're not quite sure what's going on. And lo and behold, behold, we're told in verse 25, when morning comes, there was Leah! What have you done? You know, it's comic. If it was a film, this would have like all the sort of dun, dun, dun bits. You know, camera, sort of the dolly shot zooming in on Jacob's face. The dolly shot is a cue to Jaws. I'll tell you about that later. I'll give you a bit of filmography stuff. But um, what does Laban do? He just brushes it off. It's a custom. And the custom is the older daughter comes first. It's horribly painful for everyone. I don't know how Leah must have felt. You can only feel sorrow and compassion for her, the unloved second choice. What about Rachel? It was her wedding day. What did Laban do? Tie her up and put her in a tent somewhere else? I mean, this is nuts. It's a horrible situation. Jacob complains, but he's been brought down. The deceiver Jacob has been deceived by his dodgy uncle. God justly uses Laban's treachery to teach this patriarch, this Jacob, an important lesson about the proper way to lay hold of his promises. It is as if the Lord said to Jacob, yes, I've chosen you. Yes, I'm sovereignly using your sins, your transgressions for my purposes. But I do not approve of your way. I do not approve of the way you've lived to this point. There are consequences, and I must discipline you for it. You see, the Lord disciplines children he loves. Ali, I've put this up on the next slide. This is such an important verse for us to hold on and actually say, do we believe this? The Lord disciplines the children he loves. Sometimes the Lord will do that through tough surgery, like a crisis or illness. Sometimes it will be through regular medication, like taking his word and prayer daily. At other times, it's like a vaccine, giving us a taste of what you might get to actually bring us to resilient health. Laban deceived Jacob by giving him a taste of his own medicine. The younger brother who stole from his older brother, who tricked his blind father, was tricked by a veil and the darkness of night so that the older sibling would not be overlooked. Jacob tastes the poison of a deceptive heart and is broken by it. He now has two wives, another seven years of hard work ahead. He is enslaved because of his passions. Can you see that? The real consequences for running headlong, thoughtlessly, prayerlessly into this. And yet God is wisely using this to bring Jacob to the end of himself that he would really know and feel what it means for the Lord to be his God, for the Lord to be the blessing, for the Lord to grow him to maturity through repentance and restoration. You see, God loves us so deeply. He is not prepared to settle for anything less than him in our lives. We think we can find joy and pleasure and satisfaction outside of him. And we make a really, really good job of it. It's a lifetime's work. 
but it will lead to ruin and judgment. All hardship of whatever kind has a disciplinary purpose for us as believers. There is no such thing as pain without purpose in the life of the believer because we have a loving Father who disciples us so that we grow to reflect his glory and enjoy him more. And just as we close, there's a scene three here. It's approximately 17 centuries later. It's at another world, and it's with a better lover. It's in a different location, but this well is also known as Jacob's well. There was a woman searching for love, dissatisfied and broken by unfilled, unfulfilled relationships. She's excluded. She's shunned from people. She's lost out. But she encounters the perfect lover of her soul. Sitting by the well, Jesus asks her for a drink and ends up offering her the water of eternal life, his love, his forgiveness. He shows her the sinful brokenness of her life and also shows her forgiveness that lovingly restores, that helps her change so that she puts one foot in front of the other and actually forgets the water vase she brought and runs to a town to tell people, you've got to meet this guy who knows everything about me. He is the Messiah. He comes to cut through all our deceit. Jesus comes to cut through all our schemes, all our appetites, all our desires, and offers forgiveness. He says, I will change you. We will be broken by him, but it is a good brokenness, the best person to be broken by because he is the lover of our souls. He will not just break, but build us up to be what we're called to be, glory bearers in his image, delighting in his love, knowing his life. I'll close with these words from John 4, 14. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Father God, we thank you that you are the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, who loves your children, who is prepared to discipline us so that we would know your love in a deeper, better way. Father, I thank you that in this encounter with all the brokenness and sinful agendas going on here in Genesis 29, that, Lord, your purposes were being made known. Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would be prompting each person in this room now to do business with you. What is it that we're chasing, Father, that doesn't bring you glory? Fill us up afresh, Father. Satisfy us. Lord Jesus, come and work with us. This week, may we have our eyes wide open to the ways you lead us in intricate and uncertain paths. Father, for your glory we pray. Amen.